Hello, everyone, and welcome to Energy Security Cubed, where we explore the pillars that form the nexus of energy security in Canada and the world, energy, economics, and the environment. I am your host, CEO and President of the Canadian Global Affairs Institute, Kelly Ogle. On today's episode, recorded August 10, 2021, we are bringing back one of our early guests to provide an update on the current status of global oil supply and demand and to speak in broader terms about the all of the machinations of energy security in Europe. Joining me today from Geneva is Dr. Richard Norris. Richard is a CGAI fellow, energy expert and managing director of Pandraco Energy Advisors. He is a prolific commentator on energy and a keystone of the CGI's Energy Security Forum. Welcome, Richard. Glad to have you. Hi, nice to be here. Thank you, Kelly. Uh, people who listen to my podcast may remember Richard from one of our first episodes on Energy Security Cube titled Peak Oil Demand, Reality Versus Perception. At the time of, that, of recording that episode, WTI futures were trading in the $36 US range per barrel, that is. Lately, they have been oscillating around $70 per barrel. While demand hasn't recovered fully from the pandemic, supply has tightened dramatically in some places more than others. On that podcast, you mentioned two things which you thought would affect oil supply in the short term. First, that banks are more hesitant to fund new U.S. shale production. And I'll just add to that, uh, Richard, the uh, certainly global financing for oil and gas exploration and development has certainly been uh, not hamstrung, maybe, but it's being pushed back by uh, forces like the EIA, suggestions of no future development. We can go into that. Um, and secondly, that OPEC, Countries want oil prices between 70 and 100 to maintain healthy trade balances and support fiscal policies at home. Are these still really positive or powerful factors or what's changed in the past eight months since we last visited? Um, in some ways, I'd say not not a great deal has changed. What what we have seen is the um, the, the transition from the uh, epidemic to a pandemic and, and now it's becoming endemic and we're having to learn to live with COVID. Um, and as a result, there is, um, you know, an, an, a fairly dramatic rise in the demand for all energy sources, um, probably more rapidly than a lot of people expected. Um, certainly, there are some sectors, uh, international air travel is still down, but that's quite a minor call on, on, on oil supply. Um, but by and large, uh, demand has come back up. And, and I think really, when we, we think about oil prices, we need to think about demand. Um, a lot of policy decisions have been driven by um, driven by a future that isn't here yet, and policy and investment is being driven by sort of green wishing uh, rather than green washing. It's, it's what we'd like the world to be like, but it actually isn't. Um, and we've seen this, you know, in, in oil, the, the price is to some extent controlled by OPEC or OPEC Plus with with Russia involved. Um, and what they're very good at is they're controlling uh, prices on the downside. When prices go too low, they can restrict supply and they can push them up to what they think is a reasonable level, one that doesn't negatively impact um, the, the buyers uh, and one which provides them with enough revenue. Where I have a concern is that when we get the demand supply equation wrong, is that if demand does continue to rise and we are going to be sitting on the best part of a decade of underinvestment in conventional oil, there will come a point where we will be uh, in a supply squeeze. And the problem with that is that whilst OPEC can control prices on the downside, they, they have limited ability to control prices on the upside. When we, when we run out of supply, um, it's a long lead business. You, you can't turn the taps on instantly, even in the shale. 
Um, well, and I think just to interrupt for a second, Richard, that 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 the uh, existential factors that you suggest about the large suppliers, including Russia, and also the buyer, China, controlling that upper level so that you can't see a big expansion in production that's hard, that's more costly to produce. Correct? Yeah, I think that's right. There's there's um, you know high oil prices are bad for everybody. They're bad for oil producers because they they drive substitution. Um, they're bad for the global economy because so much of the economy relies on on oil essentially for transport and, and to some extent for processing um, there's, there's the notion of embedded energy or the cost the cost of energy is embedded in the cost of everything so when it goes up it is bad for everybody so there is a there is kind of a goldilocks price that, that they want to to manage um, but as i say you know if prices uh if sorry if supply is constrained as we think it will be once we get to sort of 2019 levels um there is very little to control prices on the upside it is it is just not possible to have the taps being opened because there is no spare capacity beyond a certain level um, and i think that will come as a lot of surprise to people because you know the the the, the notion people has is that we're, we're all going to be driving teslas by then so there isn't really a problem and unfortunately that isn't going to happen not in the time frame we're talking about no it's it's interesting you know if you want to expand a little bit on that that canard about incremental production such as the spare capacity that OPEC used to have that just doesn't exist anymore does it it, it does to the extent that they have sh they have voluntarily shut in production um, so there is some spare capacity today um, if we get back to you know and we're not very far off 2019 numbers that spare capacity is going to be brought back online and then beyond that there is very little uh, and probably nothing that can be brought on quickly um, it's a combination of underinvestment by the IOCs, uh, particularly by the NOCs, who control something like 85% of the world's production. Um, you know, when I was looking at this in 2018, you could look at the big oil-producing countries, uh, Saudi Arabia, Russia, the United States, and they were all producing at essentially historical highs. And we know that Russia and Saudi Arabia are producing from mature fields, which are inevitably going to be in decline phase. And whilst they have additional resources that can be brought on, they don't have super giant fields like uh, Guar or Samatlor or Surgut. Um, so, so there is going to be a problem as these giant older fields that were discovered in the 1950s and 60s as they decline. So whilst policymakers are thinking about all of this, uh, it, it really should be thinking about demand because you can do a lot on the, on the uh, you can do a certain amount on the supply side, but it's out of our control. What we can control more than anything probably is the demand side. So does that lead to the, and I'm, I'm you know, I, I don't want to go too far down a rabbit hole here, but I, I love, I love the term you use green wishing, like, cause that's the demand side, right? All of a sudden we're going to convert this large hydrocarbon densely packed energy system with a bunch of things that are going to replace it as far as moving things around ships, trains, planes, trucks, cars. I, and I, I guess, <laughs> It's all wonderful to think that, but you know, just expand a little further on why that's not possible. I, I just don't see it in the next, you know, maybe gradually in an inverse variation phase in the next decade. Is that would that be a fair number of years to think about possibly getting to thirty or forty percent of transportation driven by something other than hydrocarbon? Uh, honestly, I mean, I'd I'd love to have a, a crystal ball and be able to answer that, but. Um... I think the reality is that it's going to be much slower um, simply because, well, I think there's multiple reasons. You, 
you know, even if you mandate that uh, new cars have to be electric vehicles, there is a, a turnover of essentially the life of a vehicle. It could be 10 to 15 years. So as the entire fleet of a country turns over, it takes, it takes time for that to happen as the order of a decade. Um, I think what we're also going to see is, is that, and probably being underestimated, is that many of the projections rely on the idea that because the cost of, for example, solar panels or wind turbines has come down by a large amount in the last decade, they will continue to decline. It's like sort of extrapolating a curve uh, as a straight line. Um, and it doesn't take into account you know, various things such as the technological innovations will plateau, but more importantly, the resources that are required for those in, in when we get to very large scale rollout of say batteries for electric vehicles, you are gonna have the simple laws of supply and demand occurring on the basic materials you need for the batteries um, or the copper wiring that goes into cars and so on. Um, and in, 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 and when you think of it in those terms, it seems highly unlikely that the reduction in cost will continue. And in fact, the cost base will probably increase. And if that does happen, you have to question whether the transition will occur in any way close to the projections that are based on reducing costs. Richard, let's go back, if you, if you don't mind, to discussion about uh, future supply. And, and I, the, I, I like the discussion we were having about new production and, and where it comes from. You have you have experience in in the southern hemisphere with uh, with a large uh, offshore project. Is that not correct? Um, several. So I, you know, one of the so let's say that you know I think a lot of us that follow this this narrative understand that demand will return to 100 million barrels per day and and will likely stay in that range plus or minus five percent for several years. And the way to fill that demand is with is the bigger fines, right? Like. Is, what, are there still some elephants out there that are that can be developed off like the, the big offshore are where the uh, new resources would be is that not correct I, I think that's right and uh, someone explained this to me years ago he said that you know if, if you're an exploration geologist and you have a map of the world and you, and you throw darts at it randomly the chances are is you'll hit the big fields first simply because they're big now obviously the exploration geologists are much cleverer than that and they use all of the the science they can so again, the probability of hitting big fields um, early on is actually quite high, even though the technology has advanced significantly in the meantime. Um, but it depends what you mean by big, because I think we discussed this last time, you know, Prudhoe Bay is north of 10 million barrels, 10 billion barrels, sorry. Kashigan, I think 13 billion barrels. Um, the only things that are even similar to that that uh, I know of uh, in the last couple of decades are probably the pre-salt fields in, in Brazil. Um, which yeah, that's the, where I was going with this discussion. Um, and, and they are, they are, you know, fantastic fields. Um, I, there was one that I was, someone was telling me, um, uh, an entire FPSO is being filled from four wells and it's doing, I think over a hundred thousand barrels a day. So you've got, you know, four wells just filling this thing up. So it's, but it's very deep. It's very expensive and very complicated to get at. And in some ways should be thought of as unconventional resources because you have gone from the conventional onshore to very deep water, very deep drilling, uh, high pressure environments. And of course it's very costly. Now, because they're big, um, that works out. But these are not big fields in the historical sense. Big fields in the historical sense are 50 to 100 billion barrels. They're, they're something in the region of 10 times bigger. And there haven't been any fields of that size discovered since the 1950s or 60s. 
And perhaps the only caveat we could say to that is the U.S. shale, where because they're drilling into a source rock, it isn't actually a field in the sense of a trapped reservoir. It is a very large aerial extent of low porosity, low permeability uh, rock that has oil impregnation throughout all of it. So it, it's a very different scenario, but the, the volumes are very big. So uh, the shale is probably the only uh, area where there is room for a lot of growth. Well, and that's that. Yeah, we talked about that last time. And and uh, you you uh, you know you where is U.S. shale today? Because it U.S. it's today it's about a million barrels a day under March levels of 2020 levels. Um, you mentioned in the previous podcast that even with the uh, IEA's rapid transition scenario, which in my opinion is folly, requires about 700 billion barrels of new reserves in the next 20 years. And that analysts, some analysts predict a supply gap of 17 million barrels a day by 2025. Like that, that's a big gap. Like that's a, that's a $150 oil <laughs> per barrel. If that was the case, Yeah, I mean, is this real? Is it, are these numbers realistic? Um, I think the 700, 750 billion barrels in the next 20 years is absolutely realistic. Um, I, I've redone that calculation based on a couple of scenarios. Um, and you know, for those who are not familiar with with the oil industry, if you, you know, I was trying to think of a good analogy for this, but if you, when people think about peak uh, peak oil or peak demand, what they're what they're thinking is that we're going to stop using oil, but right. it isn't. It's it's the it's the end of growth in the amount of oil we use. So it's a bit like you're driving a car and you, you're starting off at five miles an hour, and after after a while you get to hundred miles an hour but you can't stop immediately. So if for the next four or five you know, hours you drive at hundred miles an hour, you do 100 miles every hour. Um, and then if you reduce to 90 and then to 95 and 85, you're still going very fast. So you're covering a large distance. And it's the same with the production of oil. At hundred million barrels a day, we're using 35 billion barrels a year. Per year, yeah. And, you know, and, and even if that declines fairly fast, because you're starting at a very high point, the total volume you need in the next 10, 20 years is very, very large. Now, I don't know if the, I don't think the supply gap's ever going to be in the region of 17 million barrels a day. Uh, that's just too big. Um, you know, the, the, the price mechanism will come into play. Um, but the problem is, is that the price is dictated just by the marginal barrels. And it doesn't have to be very many. It can be half a million barrels or a million barrels a day out of 100 million. Um, if you're over or under by a small amount, it can drive the price. And as I said earlier on, OPEC can control that if prices drop, they can drive prices back up. If it gets away from them on the upside, there's very little that can happen, except that those extremely high prices will curtail demand. Well, and but, that's where, where government policies become so much part of the, of the discussion. I, you know, the, <laughs> the governments have to eventually toe the line of the voter in certain cases, but in the, you know, it, it brings to mind the ability of uh, command economies and uh, state-owned enterprises to make some, uh, I'm not, I'm not going to say dictatorial decisions, but they can certainly make decisions that might not be too handy to uh, people that continue to greenwish. I'll just leave it at that. Richard, let's turn to European gas. Spot prices for European natural gas have surged as a result of a series of factors, including booming Asian LNG prices, steep drop in Russian imports, and a sharp rise in the European carbon price. Do you see these high energy prices as transitory, or do you think that the European energy system has created conditions for a persistent increase in the cost of energy? Oh, very much the latter. Um, I think there's a structural change happening. Um, I mean, my worst case scenario is that 
irrespective of what we do, the cost of energy is going to go up. And fundamentally, when you think of economics in terms of, of energy, um, which economists don't, but they really should do, um, when you have large amounts of surplus energy, you have a huge driver for growth. When you have constrained amounts of surplus energy or that energy becomes expensive, it puts a break on growth. Um, it's it's a, perhaps a whole different subject for a whole different podcast, but it is, it is absolutely fundamental. Um, because we are going to be resource constrained on the oil side um, and to some extent on the gas side, you know, even if we didn't have a climate imperative, we would have a problem that the cost of hydrocarbons as a fuel is going to increase. On the other hand, you know, if, if we move away from hydrocarbons too quickly, we're going to be reliant on uh, sources of energy um, which have different characteristics. Uh, intermittent right. or inflexible or you know, nuclear is, is inflexible but it is reliable wind and solar are unreliable and they're unflexible you can't choose that when you have them uh, and what's happening in Europe and I, I was talking about this to um, uh, the parliamentary group on energy studies in the UK earlier on actually last month um, just taking a, a period of 12 days in uh, the end of February beginning of March which we had a classic anti-cyclone sitting over northern Europe. Um, very still weather, uh, because it's towards the end of winter, not much solar uh, capacity and relatively short days. And when you take out the nuclear and the gas, and of course the gas is what was filling the, the, the supply gap for electricity in, in the UK. If you take that out, um, you have to ask yourself what could possibly fill the gap? Um, if we doubled or tripled the amount of wind and solar power, and there's, there's quite a lot, there's 20 gigawatts of installed capacity in the UK uh, for, for wind power and eight gigawatts of, of solar. And our typical demand in winter is about 40 gigawatts. So we're not far off a sort of a, a theoretical nameplate coverage. But when the wind drops, of course, it's producing less than one gigawatt. So if you had doubled it and you'd produced and you had built wind farms all through the North Sea and you had 40 gigawatts of installed capacity or 60 gigawatts, you still would have a gigantic gap missing there. And, you know, and so then the question is, well, how do you fill that? Maybe it's batteries. Well, the battery capacity, um, you, know, you can't equate one gigawatt of battery to one gigawatt of energy of electricity generation because a battery will only last an hour or an hour and a half. So you know, we had in that, that particular period I looked at, um, we had battery coverage that would have covered about 10 minutes of supply and there were 17,000 minutes missing in terms of what the wind should have been providing at that period. And that was all filled by gas. Um, and I think that's why we, we were perhaps talking about it, but what we've seen in the last couple of years is an enormous increase in the discussion around hydrogen as an alternative uh, energy source. Now, it's not a fuel, it is a storage medium. But what you need in these yeah, situations... Yeah, explain that, Richard. I don't think people... We've had a couple of guests on about hydrogen and it's hard, hard. It isn't like filling your your car with gasoline. It's not the same thing. Um, it, it, it's not the same thing in the sense that um, there. It's one of those things where you can spin it different ways. You can say it's the most abundant element in the universe, and when you combust it, it produces water. So what could possibly be a problem? Well, the problem is it doesn't naturally exist as hydrogen. It, it's a very reactive molecule, so it always forms. Um, it's either in the form of methane or it's in the form of, of water. Um, it combines with other, with other elements. So you have to break it, which requires energy, if you want to store it as hydrogen. 
so that when you, when, you then, when you then combine it with other molecules, it releases that energy. But again, by the laws of thermodynamics, when you go through that process, you increase entropy and you, you lose some energy in, in the process. So if you had naturally occurring hydrogen that you could harvest, you could use it as a fuel, but you don't. You have to create it. And it's either through breaking methane, which is natural gas, or by electrolysis of water, either of which require a large amount of energy. And then you have the problem of storage and transportation. Um, and, cor and corrosion. And, and potentially corrosion, although according to, to people who know more about this than I do, and particularly you know, pipelines, for example, traditional steel pipelines are problematic, but modern plastic ones are not particularly. So it can be, it can be, it can be dealt with. But fundamentally, you've got a, you've got a product that um, I think the reason there is all the hype around it at the moment is simply that we know we want to use a lot more renewable energy. We know that it's intermittent and there's going to be enormous gaps that need filling. We don't want to use gas because that's considered to be a moral hazard that we're locking in carbon emissions because it's, it still has carbon emissions, even if they're, they're less than coal. We know batteries can't do it because the scale will never be there. So we're kind of clutching at straws. We've got a problem that needs to be solved. There's something that looks like a solution and everybody is jumping on that bandwagon to say that they can do it. And the reality is, is that it is highly unlikely that hydrogen is going to be anything other than a niche player going forward. Well, I think, I'd, and I hate to be uh, trite, but it's a the, at, at the current valuations and costs of, as you say, extraction, it's a straw man argument. You're uh, currently living in the, I know you're in Geneva, but you live in the UK. Having said that, Richard and his family are moving to Montreal. So welcome to Canada, Richard. We're looking forward to a lot closer collaboration on events in, once we can hold them in the fall, hopefully. And uh, we need a footprint in Quebec with CGI. So we're looking forward to you helping us do that. Um, so we just talked about the UK uh, energy. You know, there was a, a large event in the late winter and and uh the uk uh, regulator has recently decided to increase the cap on household electricity and natural gas bills and there's other this is happening across europe as high energy prices are being passed on to consumers hitting those with the lowest incomes you know the least efficient homes or the oldest vehicles the public transit is costly these people are hit harder how many europeans are willing to pay more for energy like, this is a problem. I got, it, it, this is a global, this can be a global issue. I, I think it's going to be a, a, an enormous issue. Um, and we saw the, um, the beginnings of that in France very clearly in 2018 with the Gilets Jaunes movement. Um, and, and I was in France at the time and uh, you know, talked to some of the people protesting on the, mount, on the roundabouts and on the uh, payage on the motorways and stuff. And, you know, and what was interesting about it was that it wasn't a political movement. It was, it was very much a grassroots movement. Um, of people who, you know, they, they were saying, um, you know, on something like, you know, on, on s'en fout de la, du fin du siècle, on peut pas rendre de fin du mois. You know, we don't care about the end of the century. We, we struggle to, to make ends meet at the end of the month. And, and this was because a fuel tax was being proposed um, in, in theory to uh, finance the energy transition. Um, and it was particularly hitting people who lived in rural areas. I mean, France is quite a big country, obviously not as big as Canada, but people drive. Uh, fuel is very expensive here. It's already very heavily taxed. Um, and the additional burden was going to make getting to work you know, very difficult um, for a lot of people. 
And the argument was, why on earth should I do that just so some rich guy in, in Paris can have a subsidized Tesla? And, and clearly the inequality of that uh, was very stark. Now, the Gilets Jaunes movement was more complicated than that because there was also an element that they didn't trust the government that this money was actually going to be used for, for the energy transition, but probably just as another form of tax. Um, and that's something we are seeing um, across Europe is that the, the cost so far, um, the direct cost people are feeling in their energy bills, but so far, you know, we're, we're not seeing revolutions. Um, in Germany last year, they put about 29 billion of additional costs coming out of the, uh, the wind payments that they do capacity constraint payments uh, for wind farms so that if they're generating when it's not needed, they still get paid. Um, and, and that gets distributed amongst all taxpayers. And they didn't put it on the energy bills because it was such a large amount. They felt that it would, it would cause problems. So they, they disguised it in a sort of form of general taxation. So, you know, Europe is, is heading in a, in a, I think, in a, in a very dangerous path, because on the one hand, you've got increasing cost of energy, which will impact consumers. It will increase inequality. And at the same time, you're creating a system that is less stable from an energy security point of view. I mean, there, there is no, no coincidence that Germany has just completed Nord Stream 2 um, because they need the gas. And this was the same as the UK. The, the amount of gas we need to plug the gaps of when the wind and solar are not providing is actually increasing. And to put a, an even worse um, scenario on that is that at the moment, um, there's a fairly well-integrated energy electricity um, market in Europe. Um, the UK, for example, has interconnectors from France. It has three gigawatts that can come from France. It has interconnectors with Belgium, with the Netherlands, and with Norway. Um, and of course, transfrontier um, interconnectors between um, bordering countries like Germany and France are very common. So what happens is, is that when you have an anti-cyclone and you need additional electricity, everybody is demanding more electricity. And the only country providing it is France because it has a very large nuclear fleet. Um, and there's going to come a point, uh, Belgium is planning on shutting seven nuclear reactors. It's only got seven. It's planning on shutting all of them in the next couple of years. Um, the UK is very, very slowly uh, thinking about replacing nuclear reactors, but shutting all of its coal. Germany, of course, has shut most of its nuclear and is, is very keen to shut its coal. Um, and their plan B is to rely on importing from their neighbors. But if everybody ends up relying on everybody else, I mean, you, you literally have a house of cards. Richard, I've, you know, I, I don't want to sound like Chicken Little and the sky is falling, but, and I'm going to take, a, I'm going to go on a little rant here. I'm a, a military historian by hobby, and this is how wars start, you know, like, and Europe's famous for it for, you know, several hundred years now um, in smaller cases. But, you know, you start taking from me. And I'm going to take back from you. Like I, the European Union is, has been a wonderful place for uh, all, all kinds of cross-border conventionality and convenience. But here we are. Like, I, I, I feel like this could be an abyss here. We could jump into something un unbelievably bad. It, it, it just boggles my mind that Belgium, seven nuclear power plants, with, with, you use the term inflexible, which is great, that you know, inflexible, but uh, completely dependable. What, what is the political genesis and what is the thesis that says that this is important? This is smart. I, 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 please tell me, because I, I don't get it. Um, 
I mean, I think it, it comes to the, you know, the, the fear that has been generated um, over the last 40 years from Three Mile Island and Chernobyl and Fukushima, um, that there has been a long-standing anti-nuclear movement in Europe. And I think this is where the environmental movement starts to get tied in knots, because if you want reliable, low-carbon electricity, and France is the poster child for this, yes. Um, you know, you, you, you build a large nuclear park, um, but the people who are anti-carbon are also anti-nuclear um, to a large extent. Uh, and that leaves me scratching my head because I think somebody once said, if you're, you know, if you're anti-nuclear and anti-carbon, you're pro-blackout. Um, you know, the, yeah. the, it's very hard to see how this happens. And if you think about the way, you know, I was reading um, some comments on a LinkedIn post the other day, and there was, there was somebody bemoaning the fact that both the United Kingdom and Germany have much greater solar uh, generation capacity than France, despite the fact that France, obviously, particularly in the southern half, has a much better uh, solar irradiation levels. Um, but if you think about it, in the UK, when you put solar in, you are, to a large extent, displacing coal. And because you're displacing coal, you're doing it with a combination of solar and gas. And net-net, you're much better off from CO2 emissions. If you do that in France, you're essentially undermining the uh, the profitability or the, the the sustainability of the nuclear industry. So you're replacing uh, reliable low carbon electricity with unreliable low carbon electricity, which makes no sense whatsoever. Yeah, I I, I don't get it, and I guess we both need to look into this further and come up with a another. We'll have another uh, discussion on other forms of energy in Europe. Is there anything else you'd like to add about what you're seeing in Europe, Richard, before we end the podcast? I, I, I know that it, we're, we're so lucky to have you at the pointy part of the spear in the European energy security discussion. And, and uh, please editorialize to finish. Yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd like to just talk a little bit about gas and coal, because we've talked a lot about oil and, and the oil prices, you know, we know it's controlled to some extent by, by the OPEC cartel. Um, so you could argue that it's it's not it, it doesn't really reflect what's happening in the world. Um, when you look at gas and coal, there is no cartel that controls them, so it's, it's very much supply and demand. Um, and both of them have had almost exponential rises in in prices recently. Um, now coal was supposed to be dead. Right. Um, you know, if, if if you if you owned a coal mine, you know you if you owned shares in a coal mine, you were you you were the biggest mug at the poker table. Um, that's not true anymore. You know, coal has has increased, and it, in some ways, it's a very good example of what happens when there's a major divestment policy, which is based on wishful thinking. Coal is still required. A lot of coal plants got shut in because people said, "Well, we're, we're not going to fund you." Um, nobody will fund coal anymore. Um, but for those who are sitting on coal assets, they're making very good money today because the demand is still there. Like well, they've spent most of the capital required to extract their assets. So if it's if the price is high enough, they're going to have giant profitability. It's, yeah, it'd be yeah. a wonderful time to own a coal mine. Yeah, um, <clears throat> and, and it is. And, and the same with gas. I mean, we thought the gas market was going to, global gas market was going to be oversupplied for potentially decades. Um, and I was looking at this when, when I was doing equity investments um, a few years ago, and we didn't want to fund projects that were um, on the upstream end because we felt that there was going to be the supply gut for a long time. But I think everybody thought that, um, and we were wrong. 
um, the market has turned around. Uh, gas prices in Asia, when they had a particularly cold winter, uh, last uh, Northern Hemisphere winter, uh, prices went up by a factor of 10. And then you can start seeing how this plays into energy security. Uh, a country like New Zealand, uh, in 2018, they, they got on the, on, the, on the bandwagon and they, they did a, uh, you know, a proclamation that they were going to ban all exploration for oil and gas in their territorial waters. Well, it didn't make the headlines particularly because you know, New Zealand is not a major player in the oil and gas space. I mean, they have some nice oil fields offshore Taranaki and places, um, or gas fields rather. Um, but uh, that was 2018. 2021, uh, gas prices go to the roof and they're having a strategic review on energy security because they've noticed that there is a lack of, you know, lack of gas supply um, in New Zealand and a lack of investment. Well, it, I mean, you've told people not to invest there and three years later, you're scratching your head wondering why no one's investing and you've got to buy gas on the market. And just last week, they, have a, they had a particularly cold spell um, and the electricity uh, board in New Zealand was asking people to reduce their demand because they were worried that they could not meet supply, they could not supply enough, um, you know, ju just like Texas last winter, just like California. Um, and I think that's an area where we, we underestimate just how difficult it is to keep a grid stable and balanced. Um, you know, I, I've only been learning my way into the electricity markets in the last few years, but my perception was always that, you know, an electricity grid is this kind of big stable thing, but it isn't, it's inherently unstable that there, there are, very talented professionals with very uh, you know, sophisticated models predicting from second to second, minute to minute, hour to hour, the day ahead market. Um, and they're trying to match supply and demand on a permanent basis. But when it goes wrong, and we haven't seen it go wrong properly yet, but when it goes wrong, it's, it's catastrophic. I mean, Texas was, was very bad, um, but they avoided the worst because if the grid had gone down, it could have taken three or four weeks to get it back up. That's what people don't, that was my learning from the Texas experience was that, you know, it, the inherent instability in a grid makes it incredibly difficult to pick back up once it's gone down. So hopefully we won't ever see that, but I, I'm convinced we're going to see more blackouts. And, and if I just may finish with talking about, you know, energy security in Europe, I, I was on a, a webinar um, through the CGAI, but on, uh, with, with NATO um, uh, several months, almost a year ago now, I think. And my Canadian uh, colleagues on that call were saying how worried they were about Canadian energy policy. And I said, well, look, you know, um, um, firstly, I'm thinking of moving to Canada with my family because my wife's Canadian. And they said, good grief, why would you want to do that? You know, it's a disaster here. And I said, well, it, it may be a disaster. But when I look at Europe, I think the energy policy is just as bad with the caveat that there are no resources in, in, in Europe. At least Canada has resources to fall back on. Now, Maybe we don't want to use them, maybe not. But uh, as, as a backup, if, you know, I, I won't use the expression, but if things get bad, um, I would rather be in Canada than in Europe. Richard, you're coming to the best country in the world. We do have some issues here. We've got a federal government that at the leader, high leadership level has a different understanding of the future of energy. But I think that you get down to the lower levels of, of even cabinet ministers and uh, high-level deputy ministers and, and, and bureaucrats, and they understand the necessity of the Canadian energy grid. Um, I would suggest to our listeners to listen to the Hurley Burley uh, uh, podcast with David Hurley, I think his name is, that uh, when he speaks to Minister O'Regan, um, clearly states that the oil sands aren't going away anytime soon. So that, that's, but that's for another day. 
Richard, this has been just fascinating and uh, always a pleasure to have you on the show. And, and uh, we look forward to working with you in the uh, future. As always, we want to ask you what you're reading these days. Um, I'm going to be a bit uh, <laughs> try here. I've actually spent quite a lot of time playing video games with my children recently. So that's been uh, taking me away from reading <laughs> hardcore well, that's, stuff. That's that's great. Like, I, and you're getting consistently beaten like a drum. It is it is worse than embarrassing, but uh, it's, it makes it, it humors them enormously. But what I'm reading, um, I'm reading um, the biography of Richard Feynman by uh, James Gleick. It's probably twenty something years old now. Uh, it's called Genius, and uh, just makes me realize that on the human scale, um, there are people who are at the far end of the long tail, who are <laughs> dramatically, uh, you know, more intelligent and more uh, accomplished than than the vast majority of us. Yeah, makes us makes us mentally feel pretty small. Thanks so much, Richard. Pleasure, Kelly. Thank you very much. Thanks everyone for listening to this episode of Energy Security Cubed on the Canadian Global Affairs Podcast Network. You can find the CGAI Network on iTunes, Spotify, and Google Play. If you like the show, give it a rating. You can also find the Canadian Global Affairs Institute on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. If you like this episode and want to help us keep creating content, you can support us by donating at cgaica support. Energy Security Cubed is brought to you by our team at CGAI. Thanks go out to our producer, Joe Kalnan, and to Drew Phillips for providing our music. I'm Kelly Ogle. Thanks for joining us on Energy Security Cubed.